Good morning. Before we get started, I want to make an announcement. I want to first thank Dean for doing research regarding one of the speculative ideas that I have uh, suggested here over the last few weeks regarding um, the concept of the possibility of day one of creation being a black hole being dissipated. Dean spent a lot of time doing some research, and currently the science of physics and astrophysics doesn't really support the idea that at the core of a black hole there's structured or formed matter that could be used. Um, So... Um, Because we want to emphasize that integrative approach of science, scripture, and uh, experience all working together, I'm going to to be backing off that speculative idea at this point. And remember, when I say some of these things, I I want you to recognize sometimes we do use our speculation in here and don't put things out as just fact. But um, the point where scripture and science agree is that Genesis 1 doesn't describe the creation of the entire universe, it describes the creation of the solar system. And that's where both of them are in harmony. And that was really the point. But thanks, Dean, for checking that out for us. All right, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We pray that your spirit will be with us and lead us into truth. Let our minds integrate the evidences you have for us and come to know you and your methods more fully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, so, somebody read the memory text for us, which is very familiar, Revelation 14, 6, and 7. Maybe some of you even know it by heart. Revelation 14, 6, and 7. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation, and tribe, and tongue, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven, and the earth, and sea, and springs of water. And as you read this, and you know it, we've probably heard it more than a hundred times in our life, what are the key points and the meaning of this passage? Because you had to bullet point the keys. What are the keys of this? It's time. Okay, time for? His judgment. His judgment meaning? God to be judged. Ah, okay. One of the meanings is, it's time for God to be judged. Or time for God to sit in judgment of us, which is kind of a traditional way of looking at it. This is one of the elements. But, but, but there's, even before that point, there's a message that goes worldwide. There's a good news message that goes worldwide. That's, that's part of what this is saying. And, and, and it's calling for, for the creation to be in awe, to be in amazement, to be in adoration of, of God. To have hearts and minds restored to godliness so that we glorify him, give him glory. Okay? Because, now all that, hey, there's a good news message going worldwide to be in awe of God, to have your hearts and mind restored, to give him glory, because the time for him to be judged has come. Again, not a traditional uh, presentation. Yes. Traditional presentation is fear God. Give because he's coming to judge. Yeah, stand, stand in terror, tremble, hide in the corner like a mouse because you don't want him scrutinizing you and pray that Jesus stands between you and the Father so he can't see you. Correct. Yes. So there's two ways to view this. Our, our view is supported by, for instance, Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 4. God, may you win your case when you take it into court. God, may you be proved right when you are judged. Okay, there is this idea in Scripture. And to, to make it very simple, if somebody, uh, if you were married and somebody lied to your wife and told your, or, or husband, depending which way it goes, um, to, to, lied to you and, and, and told your spouse that you'd been cheating, but you hadn't been. But your spouse believed it. Your spouse now moved out, thinks you're a cheater. You love your spouse, you want your spouse back, what do you have to do? 
Will killing the person who lied to them win your spouse back? No, killing the person who lied is probably going to make your spouse think, yep, yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh-huh. See? So what do you have to do to win your spouse back? Give evidence. Give evidence of what? Of your innocence. So are you on trial? Are, are, you, are you being judged even though you've done nothing wrong? Okay, this is the point. God has not done anything wrong, but he's been lied about. We believed the lies, and now it's time for the truth to go worldwide to set minds free, because, and, and we're called to glorify him, because it's the hour when this is going to happen. But notice, in this whole context also, when all of this is happening, we're called back to the attention of creator, creatorship in this passage as well. So, why do you think Revelation 14 draws our attention back to the creator God? Is it as simple as some suggest that he's calling us back to ensure we go to church on the right day and avoid business on that day? That's what this is calling us to. Be sure you know which day, because it's a test of obedience. Which is somehow this is presented. There's going to be a judgment. He's going to, he's going to scrutinize you. He's going to see if you've kept the rules, and the rules say this is what you're supposed to do, and if you don't do it, well, he's going to judge you and punish you. Is that really what this passage is about? Or is this passage about something else? Calling us back to his creatorship for a completely different reason. What, what, what reason could that be? Could it be drawing our attention back to how he created the world in Eden to run? Remember how he designed things. Remember how he built life to operate. Remember he didn't design selfishness and death and, 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 and dog eat dog, survival of the fittest. No, remember how he created life to run. Remember the creator and his ways, his methods, his law of love. Also, di- remember he is the creator to distinguish him from the false gods. And what about this? Remember the one who created is the one who can fix what's broken in you to instill hope that no matter how broken and, and, and far, far afield from God's original design we are, if we trust him, he can set it right, set us right, restore us. What's another word for setting right? Justify. He can justify us. He can set us right. So I, I'm wondering if this isn't what, what the, the call and revelation to our attention of creatorship is about to help us see his true character and methods, how he designed things to run, to instill in us hope that he can restore all things, and to remember to distinguish our trust in the one who built us from the false gods. Sunday's lesson calls our attention toward the creation of man in Eden. And what do you think the significance, when God created man, and I say man in the general sense, mankind, humanity, when God created humanity, what do you think the significance is that the first Woman was created from the rib of man, of the first man. On multiple levels, there's mul- this, this, just this fact has multiple layers of intrigue for the mind. It wasn't a random coincidence. Okay, well, well first off, it wasn't random, but let's talk, let's talk nature for a minute, the naturalist. Where in nature... Is it, is it against nature or with nature for a man to give birth to a woman? It's against nature. This is not natural. Well, now, do we see women giving birth to men? This is natural. Where has a human, ever, a human male ever given birth to a female? So, so in, in the ancient mind, 
when, when Moses is writing this, thousands of years ago, how much genetics did they know? As far as we can tell. As far as the recorded record. Yet, if he was writing this from a human perspective, and, and he wanted it to be believable from a human knowledge base at the time, would he have said, woman was taken from man? That, that doesn't really make sense. I mean, at best he might have said, he might have said, you know, God created her out of the ground separately. But biologically, can we take a woman and create a man from a woman? Does she have the genetic material alone by herself to make a man? But does a man have the genetic material from which a woman could be made? Yes, she does. Yes, he does. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So when, when you look at concepts like this, does this give you just a greater kind of confidence in the inspired word? Somebody had to know something behind the scenes to be able to write it like this and have it right. So I, I like that, that element of the, it goes against the natural world. It wasn't just Moses thinking this up on his own to write this. And it is consistent with science that it could come this way. What is the significance then, I think, where you all were going, of the fact that a rib was used, taken out of the side of Adam? Okay, equality, I like that. And it was taken out of the side of Adam for a purpose. What was the purpose that God stated that Eve was created? Stand by his side. Stand by his side as a helper. Now, does that, does that, hopefully it's ringing a little bells. I think you th- open your, your, your Bible database and think, in scripture, is there another who is to stand by our side as a helper? Say, say that louder. Oh, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, to stand by our side as a helper. Hmm. Do you think this is a coincidence that woman was created from the side to stand by our side as a helper? And the Holy Spirit is described as one who walks beside us as a helper. Do you think that's coincidental? Or is there a lesson here? What do you think? Well, what is the Holy Spirit described as? The spirit of? Okay, love and truth. Love and truth. What was woman created to help Man with. Perhaps love and truth? Perhaps love and truth? Could Adam have entered into the fullness of God-like love without Adam, without someone for Adam to serve? Without someone for Adam to give himself for? And Eve to receive that love and give of herself back to Adam? And isn't it true that men in this room, that a woman can Stir your heart with love. Open your heart. Pull love from your heart. Isn't it true? The Holy Spirit is to, to stir our hearts and, 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 and pull us with love, right? How about the idea of truth? Do spouses ever serve as mirrors to each other? That, we, that reflecting back to us information, truths about ourselves that we wouldn't see in our own self. Yes. The idea that Eve came from Adam, is that the same idea as that Jesus came from the Father? I'm not following you at all. Maybe you need to expand on that. How God can be three parts, but still be one. Well, I was getting, yeah, so, so in the, how God designed mankind, as we take this further then, um, we have 
Eve functioning as a helper who walks aside. The Holy Spirit is described as a helper who walks aside. And then they were to come into unity as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into unity. They are also constructed as individuals to be temples where the Spirit dwells. And so what do we have? We have Adam, Eve, and the Spirit, a triune of love, which is a construction of living beings who are built in whose image? Yeah, isn't it, isn't it powerful? It's a relationship of partnership. But this can only happen when our hearts and minds have been healed, when we die to self, when love has been written on the heart, the law has been written on the heart and mind, when we experience recreation, regeneration within, when we love others more than we love ourselves, when we stop seeking to get our selfish way. We don't reflect godliness in our marriage when we live for self or we live a life of inequality. This is out of uh, Patriarchs and Prophets. Maybe you've heard of this book. It's page 46. It says, God himself gave Adam a companion. He provided a helpmeet for him, a helper corresponding to him, one who was fitted to be his companion and who could be one with him in love and sympathy. Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by, stand by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him. A part of man, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, she was his second self, showing the close union and the affectionate attachment that should exist in this relationship. Quoting from Ephesians, For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it. Therefore the man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one. God celebrated the first marriage. Thus the, institu- thus the institution has for its originator the creator of the universe. Marriage is honorable. It was one of the first gifts God gave to man, and it is one of the two institutions that after the fall Adam brought with him beyond the gates of paradise. When the divine principles are recognized and obeyed, notice this phrase, when the divine principles, we could ask, what are those divine principles? You should think, can you articulate? Somebody says, what are the divine principles? Can you go bam, 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 and just name them? What are, when the divine principles are recognized and obeyed in this relation, marriage is a blessing. It guards the purity and happiness of the race. It provides through the, for man's social needs. It elevates the physical, the intellectual, and the moral nature. Wow. Wow. Did you hear that last section? When the divine principles are recognized and obeyed, marriage relationship elevates the physical, intellectual, and moral nature. Anybody want to expand on that thought? Question it? Challenge it? You believe it? Don't believe it? That's what Satan wanted to contest. He said that's what Satan wants to to contest the rulership. I think that statement is certainly testable. We can can apply the scientific method to it. And it has been done. It's been done. All you need, you just need to watch the news to see the uh, results of the experiment. Yeah, and and Russell's mentioning that that this, what was just stated there about marriage um, uh, elevating the physical, intellectual, moral nature, in other words, making us healthier and happier, can be tested. Yes, it can. If it's a healthy marriage, science is very clear. People in a healthy marriage where there's mutual respect and love and trust actually do have better physical health, mental health, um, and, uh, and just live longer, less health problems than people who live single. But people who live single have better health, mental health, physical health, live longer, less health problems than people in marriages that are conflictual. 
if you're in a conflictual marriage. So marriage can be one of the greatest blessings if it's following the principles of God's kingdom. But if marriage is living out, outside of harmony of God's principles, then it becomes one of the greatest cursings and actually degrades and destroys you faster than if you're just living as a single person in this world. You don't get the, the, the buffering of, and, the, and the nurturing effects of a loving relationship when you're single, but you also don't get torn down by a dysfunctional relationship when you're single. Do you think marriage is under attack? Well, I want you to throw out at me which ways, and I've got some bulleted here in the, in the notes, how is marriage under attack? Which ways do you see marriage being under attack? portrayal of marriage on TV and even in commercials where the dog is the smartest being in the family then the kids, then the wife then the husband Okay. (laughs) did you hear all that? and that was just more than marriage now you described family under attack Okay, where the dog is the smartest and the kids and the wife and the husband Okay. other ways other ways marriage is under attack no longer a man and a woman now. Ah, I, was, I wonder if somebody's going to throw out homosexual marriage, attacking marriage. Yes. I think it's also under attack by Christians who are attacking homosexual marriage as the problem with marriage. That's not the problem with marriage. Marriage had a problem long before homosexual, homosexual marriage issues came up. And I think the reason that there is such an issue is because we don't have a leg to stand on. How about cohabitation? Is cohabitation an attack on marriage? How about polygamy? Maybe you don't see it so much in Tennessee, but I think there's a TV program on recently uh, with my sister wives. It's called Sister Wives. Where here in America, they're, they're having polygamous marriages. Huh. Is that, an, is that an attack on marriage? How about godless marriages? In other words, humanistic marriage. There is no God. We just, you know, do our own thing our own way. But how about this one? Marriage is amongst those people who believe in God, but believe in a God who is authoritarian, and thus husbands dominate and control and rule over their wives as less than equal. Whether it's Christian, Jewish, Islamic, or Eastern. How about that as an attack on marriage? Or the reverse, the women's movement, where the woman is... Dominating control. Uh, Less common, but yes, that can happen as well. So my view, the greatest attack, my view, the greatest attack on marriage is is the one that presents itself as righteous, which is when people profess to represent Christ and then dominate, control, mistreat, demean, belittle their spouses, treat them as inferior, require their submission, including church-sponsored tenets of inequality. Did you hear what I just said? I think this is the greatest misrepresentation, this church-sponsored tenets of inequality between men and women. Explain yourself. Women not being ordained. In any level. How about... In any level. Men are not equal. Women should submit to the authority and be ruled over by their husbands. Um, in the church, the, the leadership in... in, in and uh, positions in the church should be men. Yes. That's the point I was going to make. Catholic Church, I mean, it be priests. Yeah. And I, 
haven't kept up, but I think even in our church, uh, women can't be pastors. I know there was a time when they were ordained as pastors, so there are a few, but I've never seen one as a conference president or a union president. This, yeah. So, so even if we don't talk ordained pastor, what about administrator? Women can't be administrators? Like a conference president? I mean, even if you don't want to talk the ordination thing, what about conference presidents? Yeah. We had a couple comments from our view or from our viewers. One said um, marriage is being redefined, and another one said domestic violence is actually an attack on marriage as well. Yes, and I think that falls under the the heading of domination. Uh, it's just an, a severe form of dom. But yes, it certainly is domestic violence, and that's a form of domination as, that, that we were talking about. Um, I, but but for me, the most the most evil of things are those things that masquerade as righteousness and get people to believe it's righteous. I had a patient uh, recently who was talking about the Newtown shootings and talked about how that was the worst evil. And I said, no, it wasn't. It was evil, I think. It was evil to kill kids, okay? Whether it was mental illness or purposeful selfishness, regardless, to kill kids, it's, it's an evil thing. It's evil in various ways. But it's not the worst evil because how many people look at that and go, that's good. That's a good thing. The worst evil is when it destroys people, destroys souls, destroys them for eternity, and people go, that's good. That's good. That's the worst evil. The masquerading as an angel of light while you're, you're, you're deceiving souls to eternal loss. So we could think of some examples to kind of approximate what I'm talking about. Jonestown, where people believed they were being saved while they were being destroyed. Okay, but then you maybe extrapolate that into something not so extreme, something more, more mainstream. God is an authoritarian God, and you must have your legal debts paid, and this whole type of thing here. And then it's okay for you to dominate over your wife because, and punish her. In some, some cultures, it's even okay that if you love your wife, you'll beat her. Or put her to death. Or put her to death. Because this is a very godly thing to do. Hmm. The more we are healed to become like God, the more we are back in his original design, the more equality is experienced between men and women, between husbands and wives. Not inequality. The more equality that comes. We become more like Christ, who did not think equality with God was something to, to be grasped, but humbled himself. This is what we become like on both sides of that equation. Monday's lesson focuses on the Psalms and how the psalmist credits God with creation. And there's a whole bunch of texts listed, and I, I just picked a couple of us, a couple of them for to look at. Down at the bottom, Psalms 24, 1 and 2, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Sounds kind of like Genesis 1, 1, doesn't it? That there was, you know, basically that the spirit moved upon the face of the deep. The, the idea suggested that there was something here when God came to terraform planet Earth. The harmony, again, between Genesis and Job and, and other places where the sons of God sang together for joy when the Earth was founded. And we'll look at that Job text in a minute. How about, how about this one? This, this might throw you. Psalms 74, 16, and 17 also suggested here. The, the day is yours... And yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. 
Is this literal or poetic? Do we recognize, are we, are we, is he just merely recognizing God as creator and the source of the laws of nature that result in the seasons changing? But not necessarily that God created summer and winter. Or do we take it literal, God created summer and winter? Did God create summer and winter? Or are summer and winter part of the change that came because of sin? Change because of sin. Thoughts about that? I've got a vote for change because of sin. Well, here's uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 61. Um, if you value this, is, is this, do you think this is true? Do you agree with it? Do you think this is off base? In humility and unutterable sadness, Adam and Eve bade farewell to their beautiful home and went forth to dwell upon the earth where rested the curse of sin. The atmosphere, once so mild and uniform in temperature, was now subject to marked changes. And the Lord mercifully provided them, provided them garments of skin as protection from the extremes of heat and cold. Would winter be an extreme of cold? Hmm. Were there seasons with the fall, the changing leaves, and the falling of the leaves from the trees prior to sin? No. This is out of Conflict and Courage, page 19. And then I'm going to read page 22. 19, paragraph, and then page 22. Although the earth was blighted with the curse, nature was still to be man's lesson book. It could not now represent goodness only, for evil was everywhere present, marring earth and sea and air with its defiling touch. In, in drooping flower and falling leaf, Adam and his companion witnessed the first signs of decay. Vividly was brought to their minds the stern fact that every living thing must die. Even the air upon which their life depended bored the seeds of death. As Adam witnessed the first signs of decay in the falling leaf and the drooping flowers, he mourned more deeply than men now mourn over their dead. The dying flowers were not so great a cause of grief because they were more tender and delicate. But when the tall, stately trees cast off their leaves to decay, it presented before him the general dissolution of beautiful nature which God had created for the special benefit of man. Does it sound like there were seasons, winter and summer? Did they move or did the earth move? Do you mean Adam and Eve move? Yeah. Moved out. Why was it they, and then became imperfect? They, made a, they, they sinned, so something changed? Yeah, absolutely something changed, yeah. So the, who moved? I'm not sure what you mean by moved. You're talking physical moved? Yeah, there's the, the earth. If there was no... No falling of leaves, there was no temperature changes, everything was the same. So, the earth tilt on its axis? I don't think so. So, so, so think, what, think, think through some of the evidences we have. What, what do we believe Adam and Eve were wearing prior to their sin? And do we have any suggestion in scripture that would support that idea? That God's presence would be, its, would be their light? Yes. What, 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 what would support us? So we're not just speculative here. We've got some basis for this. How about Moses' face, face coming down off God's presence was radiating light? Stephen's face was radiating. Revelation says in the new heaven and new earth, there'll be no need for the sun and moon to light it. God's presence will be his light. So when Adam and Eve sinned, did their sin cause a change such that the heavenly light became uncomfortable for them? And God withdrew the heavenly light. Thus they said, we're naked. 
Where did that nakedness come? We're cold. God's presence was withdrawn. Why? Out of punishment? Or out of love and mercy because it would have been in time. When Moses came down off the mountain and his face was radiating this glory, the children of Israel begged for him to put a veil on. Why? Protection. They were afraid. What, what, what was happening to the children? What did this light do to them? Did it cause physical burns? Did Moses have third degree burns? His whiskers were like shriveling and burning up and flames like that? No. This is not physical fire. It's heavenly love and truth penetrating into the conscious mind, which brings a conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts of guilt. It causes great discomfort. When Nadab and Abihu walked into the uh, sanctuary with unauthorized fire, it says, fire came out from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then the next verse, the cousins are instructed by Moses to go in, and he dragged them out still in their tunics. Now, if I hit you with a flamethrower and consume you with a flamethrower until you're dead, will you still be in your clothes when I'm done? They were still in their clothes. What does that tell you about this fire? So my suggestion to you is that all nature is sustained by God, life-giving eternal presence that comes from him. Sin causes a separation. God in mercy stepped back. This world is a dark place and it no longer operates as God originally designed it to operate. There's an antagonistic power, as this passage said, it could not now represent good only, for evil was everywhere present, marring earth and sea and air with its defiling touch. There's an antagonistic principle. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, says that all nature groans under the weight of sin. The natural world was changed when this happened. So, who changed? yes, Eden was taken off, and I think God somehow carved Eden out and did not let Eden itself fall under the curse of sin. And he took it off the planet while the rest of the planet fell under the curse. Yes, in the back. One part of you where it says it created fear of their own condition, that light. Yes, actually, yes, a fear is part of the curse of sin. When you, we sin, it creates fear within us, and we may have fear of our own condition. We often actually project that fear out and have fear of God. So they ran and hid because they were afraid, afraid of, of, of their condition perhaps. Also, certainly, they were afraid of God. That's why they were hiding from him, afraid that he would punish. Yes, right here. Um, doesn't uh, Spirit of Prophecy say something about the Garden of Eden still being on earth for a time after they were thrown out of it? Actually, Scripture in Genesis says that there was an angel that barred the way to the Tree of Life. Um, on earth prior to the flood and that Eden was removed um, basically and with that and the two together um, Eden was removed evidently at the time of the flood but it was kept on earth separate and, and, and humans couldn't go into it and you're suggesting that the effects that were upon the earth were not upon Eden while it was still on the earth correct yes is it not possible though that some of these changes started occurring immediately but with the flood, there was some shifting of the Earth's axis because, as I understand, during the tsunami in 2002, there was a small shifting of the Earth's axis. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, we, we're, that's a different. We weren't talking about the flood. We were talking about the Eden. Flood, it could yeah. even become more violent as far as climates, climate yes. changes, and and season changes. Yes. Yes, I see what you're saying. So more winter, more storms, those types of things. Yeah. It's getting worse. Yes, of course. And I think that's exactly what's happening. I think that, that as hearts and minds close to God, the Holy Spirit slowly gets withdrawn from the earth. And as the Holy Spirit slowly is withdrawn, not because the Holy Spirit doesn't want to be here, 
but because the Holy Spirit dwells where? In our hearts and minds. And as the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from the earth because hearts and minds harden and won't, and, and won't open to the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit's presence is withdrawn and Satan has more and more power on the earth to manifest his, his way of doing things. I think this is part of the progression through history as well. Um, so this, this whole idea then of the psalm, where he says in the psalm, um, because you made both summer and winter. We've kind of gone through some examination here and suggest that, well, he didn't directly make summer and winter. They were consequently. He made the, he made the laws of nature. He made the, 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 the principles upon, you know, the physics and so forth upon which these things operate. But this is a consequence of sin. So how, how do we understand scripture then? It lets us explore this question. How do we understand scripture? Do we take it concretely and literally? Do we understand the intent, the, the, that nature, life, the planet was created by God, but as Paul says in Romans 8, all nature now groans under the weight of sin. So we see God's handiwork, but God's handiwork is also marred. It's not clear. It's not a clear revelation. Yes? Could the psalmist mean that, that God prevented summer and winter from getting any more extreme than it actually became because of sin? See, this was a, so he had a hand in it, but it was a result. So he restrained the, the, extre- the severity of summer and winter. Well, one, one option is what you said, option that it's a poetic description ascribing to God all that exists. He created everything, so it just, it's a poetic description of his creatorship. Another option is that the writer of Psalms was fairly ignorant of the earth prior to the flood, excuse me, prior to, to sin, and, and just attributed everything to God. This, this is an option. Or perhaps... He was attributing, in a poetic way, the flow of time to God, that seasons change, and he's attributing the changing seasons. In other words, things will not stay the same. There's a, there's a tra- transformation coming um, from you know, winter back to summer, from death back to life. So maybe this is a poetic expression of this transformation that God can bring about. The point, I think, though, is, is there a danger in reading Scripture and taking it concretely and holding to it obstinately and not thinking about the meaning. Yes. Yeah, and how about the scriptures would teach that God is angry and punishing? You know, it seemed to be so obvious on the surface. I mean, this is pretty straightforward. God made summer and winter. It's pretty straightforward, right? Why should we need to think about that? There's a problem we don't think. Yes, in the back. Um, our, one of our viewers said, when Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil... In order that God, for God to honor their choice, he needed to change the environment so they could experience evil examples of pain, suffering, death, thorns, thistles, winter. He wasn't angry, he was sad. So one, one explanation is that God then introduced the seeds of death into the system. That's what I, unless it was typed wrongly, uh, I hear this person saying that God introduced the seeds of death to show them uh, pain and suffering and he did. But we read last week if you remember the, the things we read last week, that all the seeds of death were introduced by Satan. The, the way Christ said um, in the parable, um, didn't you sow good wheat? Where did all these tares come from? An enemy sowed these here. So the seeds of death were not put in the system by God. The seeds of death were put in the system by the enemy. God's role was to grant freedom to allow the choice to result in its natural consequence when you deviate from God's design. You don't have to... Um, cause pain to somebody who decides to jab themselves in the leg with a, with a, with a knife. 
I mean, the natural result, you don't have to say, I'm going to now spank you so you'll feel pain for doing that. No, pain is natural. Yes? Well, in, in Genesis, it talks about when he created the sun and moon and stars to mark seasons. Mm -hmm. So there may have been certainly seasons, but so much different than we know them to be now. Certainly, you know, winter in Florida is not a cold, bitter snow, death to trees and flowers experience. Okay, so, so it would be interesting. So, so you're suggesting a new possibility here that I kind of like, that there was some type of seasonal change without death and decay and the fall and the falling leaves and, and the turning and, and, and the snow and the cold extremes, that, that something changed with the seasons, kind of like we're suggested in Revelation on the tree of life, that there were 12 fruits and the fruits seemed to change on the, on the, on the, on the tree. So I kind of like this idea that somehow in God's design, there was changing season, but it was always in a kind of full summary, kind of healthy, life-giving way, not in a decay way. I like that. It implies cycles and you know, seasons, and it says to mark years, and it, so it implies cycles of time. And yeah, t years, years I don't have any problem with. Days I have no problem with. Seasons, uh, if we mean by seasons what we talk about, I, I, I don't think that that was there. I don't think the decay, the fall of leaves and those things, I don't think that was happening prior to sin. Yes? I'm thinking that to extrapolate on what she was saying is, is that love sets boundaries. And God says, you're going to go this far, you know, and, and with the dying of the trees and leaves and everything, then, then there's spring, you know, and there's beauty and life again. So love sets boundaries, and God in love set them. Russell. Well, I think it's reasonable to conclude that our earth was set in an elliptical orbit around the sun from the beginning. Um, so just, just an elliptical orbit would change the sunlight, the angle of refraction, from the sun, so there would be there be changing there be changes there with the day lengths and things like that. Depending, so many elements uh, not in evidence at this point. Did the did the axis the Earth shift so that now it, it angles differently than it does? I mean, even today with the Earth's elliptic, elliptical or, orbit, you don't get much of a season at the equator. I mean, if you've been to Palau, we were at Palau. I mean, it's pretty much just sun's up at six, sun's down at six. Boom, boom, every day. And every day is exactly the same. Every day is exactly the same. So, you know, I hear what you're saying, but there's a lot of uncertainties about what was really like back then. Yes? Yeah, but even on Palau, there's a planting season and a harvest season. And you know, there are different times for different things to happen during the year. That may be what... They meant in the beginning about seasons that you, as time goes on. Well, I didn't, had no idea this was going to raise so many comments. It was <laughs> One thing that's nice about the theory that came across from the other side was it kind of uh, allows us the canopy theory. Like you were saying that before the flood, you know, the canopy of water was suspended and that allowed a uniform temperature. Because otherwise we have a problem with the seasons pre-existing the flood. Yeah. Because of this lack of canopy and greenhouse effect of canopy of water, so that's a possibility too. That all yeah. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Over here. Yeah. Um, the Garden of Eden did not encompass the whole earth, so it's possible that the place where the Garden of Eden was there was a uniform temperature, like there is at the equator, whereas there were still other seasons. 
further away from the garden. Yeah, but 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 uh, even outside, are we suggesting that prior to sin there were leaves dying and things like this? I wasn't. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't care anywhere on the planet. I don't think there was death prior to sin. Yes. I just looked up seasons in the Concordance and Strong's, and the word is from. The, the strongest meaning from the word is appointed place, appointed time, meeting. And we can certainly understand that in relation to season. What, it, what season means, the time for something. And the sun and the moon and the stars would give us a way of reckoning time. And when we translate seasons, we translate it more in the agricultural term, whereas maybe originally... It meant more as a time of. Did everybody hear what she said? Well, yeah, she she looked up the 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 in the in the um, was it lexicon? Yeah, the Strong's the uh, the word translated seasons in Genesis when the sun was appointed to its seasons, and it wasn't as the weather changing. It was really appointed to uh, times for things to happen. And what the psalm was saying wasn't seasons. The psalm said winter and summer. And so I think when we look at Genesis and say seasons and we look at the Psalms say winter and summer, we actually may be talking apples and oranges. So this is what she's suggesting, that the, the Hebrew in Genesis is describing the sun was appointed for particular times of things to happen, the seasons for these things to happen. And Psalmist is actually talking about summer and winter. And in our mindset and the way we use the language, we kind of equate seasons with summer and winter and fall and spring. So that could be a, another, another possibility as well. As I was reading through, uh, coming with some of these passages I read to you, I read this in Conflict and Courage. And it, in relation to, remember last week we talked about the changes in the animal kingdom and how you know the, the ferocious animals and things came? This is what I read in Conflict and Courage, page 19. It says, um, Continually Adam and Eve were reminded also of their lost dominion. Among the lower creatures, Adam had stood as king, and so long as he remained loyal to God, all nature acknowledged his rule. But when he transgressed, this dominion was forfeited. The spirit of rebellion to which he himself had given entrance extended through the animal creation. Did you hear that? Does it make sense that God created the earth as a microcosm of the universe, a little theater of angels and men, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, with Adam and Eve representing the Godhead to govern over the whole planet in love, that when they rebelled against God, the result of that rebellion spread into the theater so that that would also be revealed, that the animals now are rebelling against them. Tuesday's lesson, Job 38, 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? And who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. What's the implication of the fact the morning stars and angels were singing? They were there. They were there. They were there. So Genesis 1 isn't talking about all creation. This is a very, very powerful text for us for that. The Hebrew for uh, you know, angels in this text is the Hebrew word ben. Anybody see ben-her? Ben. What's ben mean? Son. Son. It means son. It's Hebrew word for son. And so some translations don't use the word angels. Some translations use the sons of God came and sang together for joy. Just like in Genesis 1, the sons, I mean, Job 1, the sons of God gathered for this meeting in Job 1, sons of God. What is the implication of that? you have a comment on that? Well, it was on the verse itself. Oh, go ahead. 
Go ahead. I was just going to say that it's interesting that morning stars is plural there, because in the rest of Scripture, it's either referring to Lucifer or Jesus, morning star, as if before foundation of the earth, there were two morning stars. More than one, at least. Okay, more than one. Um, what is the implication, sons? If we use the, the, the actual Hebrew ben, sons of God, rather than angels, what, what, what might be implied there? In, uh, in Luke chapter 3, when it gives the genealogy of Christ, and it goes, you know, Jesus, son of Joseph, and jo- son of, son of, son of, son of Enosh, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of... Wow. How many of those were actually called son of God? Adam, son of God. So when it says sons of God gathered, could this be a way of suggesting that the first created being and all of his intelligent planets came? The representative heads of all the, 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 the planets where there's intelligent life were gathered before God, and they were leading the, the heavenly chorus and singing praise and joy. Well, the question is then, why were all these intelligent beings, whether they were the first sons of God or others, why were they watching and singing for joy as the foundations of the earth were laid? Why? And, and, and as you're thinking about that, Revelation... God came to dwell with man. Re, so you're a representative head, and God is leaving you to go spend time with everybody. Thank you, God, you're leaving! Praise the Lord, he's not going to be here anymore, he's going to spend time with men! Hallelujah! How about Revelation 4, 9 through 11? Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. You are worthy, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So here we have them singing for joy, in Job, when earth is created, here we have in Revelation the heavenly beings giving glory and honor because he is creator. Why? Why this focus on creatorship? Yes. There was an emergency in heaven created by Satan, the fallen angel. And finally, God is going to do something to let the universe know who is speaking the truth. Okay, so, so you're suggesting there's something going on bigger than just creation. Okay, so, so the context of creating is resulting in joyful singing. Hallelujah, Jesus is creating, or God is creating, yeah? What's going on? Well, maybe you can get this, Daniel 4, 13 and 17. You ever notice this text in Daniel 4? It says, uh, this is in the context of talking about Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance and the, and the, and the um, judgment that came against Nebuchadnezzar that he was going to go basically insane for seven years and eat grass like the, like the ox in the field and then he was going to come back to a sanity. Remember this? this? This prophecy? Okay, listen to, to where... Did you know where that judgment came from? Listen to this. I continued looking in the visions of my head as I lay on my bed and there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven. The sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers. The decision is given by order of the holy ones. Did you know they were watchers watching us? Holy ones watching? The heavenly watchers. Pardon? Well, of course, that goes back to, again, 1 Corinthians 4, 9. Paul knew this. That's why he said, we are a theater, a spectacle to angels. They're watching. 
You get this in the book of Job when, when, when the conflict is going back and forth and, and before all the sons gathered, he says, have you considered my servant Job? Watch and see. So are you getting this, this idea that there's this, this conflict being played out in the stadium? Can you see the stadium is filled with adoring fans watching as the two opponents take the field? Challenger, Lucifer, the light bearer versus the champion, the bright morning star, cheering and joyous shouting as, as Jesus, the reigning and undefeated champion, speaks and earth is created. Dismay from Lucifer, the challenger, he cries, unfair, unfair, cheater, echoes from his fan base. What do you think about the scene? Why were the sons of God singing for joy? Why was Jesus creating? Remember, all things are created by him. Without him, nothing is created that has been created. Jesus is the member of the Godhead to create. Why? Father wasn't able? Holy Spirit was busy? No, because the, the attack of Lucifer was equality to Christ. And Christ said, no. We're not equal. You're a created being. I am the creator. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Yes. That goes along with your perspective of how you read Job 1.6. When the sons of, uh, of the um, God came to present themselves before the Lord. Did they come because they wanted to be judged? Or were they coming to celebrate? And watch. Watch and cheer. They're coming because they're coming to the game. They're coming to, I mean, they're coming because the opponents are on that. Look, who was on the battlefield? Who was in the arena? Who was in the stadium? Who took the field? It was Christ and Satan from walking to and fro on the earth. And they were in the stands watching. Psalms, notice what he created. They're cheering for his creation of planet earth. Were you there when foundations of the earth were laid? And notice what he created. This is out of Psalms 8, 4 through 9. Get your mind around this. When I looked at the sky, which you have made, at the moon and the stars, which you have set in their places, what are human beings that you think of them, mere mortals, that you can care for them. Yet you made them inferior only to yourself. You crowned them with glory and honor. You appointed them rulers over everything you made. You placed them over all creation, sheep and cattle and wild animals too, the birds and the fish and the creatures of the sea. O Lord, our, our Lord, your greatness is seen in all the world. Or, that was the Good News Bible. This is the New, new Revised Standard of that, verses 4 and 5. What are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. Mm-hmm. And the word there, because some versions, they're really uncomfortable with that, so they say, you've made them a little lower than the angels. The word there is Elohim. Made them lower than Elohim. Just a little, just a little lower than Elohim. Mm-hmm. Get your mind around what God did this week and they're cheering. What did he do? What is it that gives God God-like? What is the emphasis over and over that we've been studying right now that they're saying, remember God because he is? Creator. What, what do you have the capacity to do? Procreate. You have God-like power. You can create life. And dominion. God gave Adam and Eve dominion to rule over. All, it says right here, all were subject to them. To govern Wow, can you imagine watching in the stadium? Wow, this is the coolest thing. Not fair, Satan says, so he attacks to distort and pervert. Yes. Could that also be part of the driving force behind Satan's... Jealousy? Sure. 
an attack on marriage, an attack on human sexuality. God gave us something he didn't even give. Our creatorship, Satan wants to destroy. He wants to pervert it. He wants to twist it. He wants you to be abusive parents so he can make God out to look like he abuses his kids. Same with our dominion. Same with our dominion. He wants us to, to raise cattle to slaughter and eat. Yeah, he does. So he can make God out to look like raising creatures to slaughter for his pleasure. And, some men, and, and, and of course, many teach. He's coming with that rod of iron. He's coming with a sword of vengeance. He's going to slaughter. He's going to be knee-deep in blood. He's going to have a good time. Yep. Linda. In Isaiah uh, 14, and talking about Lucifer falling from heaven, um, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. This is verse 16. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? And then jumping to uh, verse 20. Uh, like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. No, exactly. All right, let's jump to Wednesday. I really had a bunch of stuff I want to get into Wednesday. Um, and, and, and we're talking now, we're looking at creation. We looked at creation in Genesis and formation of man. We looked at creation in the Psalms. Now we're looking at creation in the prophets, in the prophets. Isaiah forty-five eighteen. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. For he has fashioned and made the, the earth. He founded it. He did not create it for to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. I, the Lord... And there are no others. The point is, question, why is there this emphasis over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament on God's creatorship? Was there competition with other gods that they were dealing with back then? Yes, even before the flood. 1 Kings 11.7, on the hills east of Jerusalem, Solomon built high places for Chemosh, the detestable gods of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable gods of the Ammonites. I'm going to just spend a few minutes just running through some of the gods of the Old Testament for you guys. But before before I tell you a little about Chemosh and Molech, anybody remember where Chemosh and Molech came from? Well, they came from Moab, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. Anybody remember where Moab and Ammon came from? Lot. Yeah, Lot and his two daughters out of Genesis. Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains. For uh, He was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man around here to lie with us as is custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. When he's aware of anything in between. Um, <laughs> the next day, the older daughter said to the younger, Last night, I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine again also that night, and the younger daughter went in and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of when she lay down or when she got up. So both Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter uh, had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. What do we learn from this story? (laughs) 
I was going to say that. See, if they only, if they only weren't drinking, right? Did you notice it was written to make Lot out to look well? Did you notice it was written to give Lot the biggest excuses possible? Okay, he didn't know what was going on. Poor guy, he didn't know anything. He wasn't responsible. And that how it was written? Did you not hear it that way? Yeah. Hmm. He was seduced and tricked. He was roofied without roofies. <laughs> what, what does it say about Lot? He'd be willing to get drunk two nights in a row. Hmm. He's living in a caveman. What does the behavior say about the daughters? Why were they living in a cave? Didn't they have a home? Why didn't they have a home? Why did they not have a home? Come on. It was destroyed. And why weren't they destroyed with the home? Oh, they just kind of moseyed out one day? Oh, wait. Angels from the Lord came and saved them. Wait, wait, wait. Think that through. They were righteous enough to be saved. Remember, if there were ten righteous, we won't destroy the city. The righteous were saved. This is what righteousness looks like? Think it through with me. God saved them and look what they did. So the question is, what is God looking for in us in order for him to send his angels to deliver us? Perfection? Sinlessness? That we eat the right foods and avoid getting drunk? Or is God looking at the heart for one specific finding? Healability. Are you healable? Are, you, are, are, are your faculties destroyed beyond my reach? Or do you still have a heart and mind that's receptive to truth and love? And are you willing to let me heal you? This is what he's looking for. Healability. God is not viewing the world through a legal lens. He isn't viewing the world through the lens of keeping a, check, keeping a list and checking it twice, searching to see who's naughty and nice. <laughs> he is viewing the world through the lens of his creatorship, how he built life to operate, where it deviates from his design, and what needs to be done to restore it. Then in our individual lives, he's assessing, is our condition treatable? Have we, or have we so persisted in rebellious living, living outside his design, that we've, de- we've, we've destroyed the very faculties within us that respond to love and truth? That's all. It's kind of the same in the medical field. If a person opens them up to the possibility that you have a cure for them and is willing to take it, no matter how sick they were, if they take the cure, they can be healed. However, if you tell them, this and this and this will really help you, but they absolutely refuse to take it or do it or whatever. There's only so much you can do. Uh, they won't be healed, and it's really they won't, they won't do what is the healthy thing for them to do. They won't. Evidently, evidently, Lot and his daughters were not beyond healing. Do they appear really good in this story? No. But how does God look? that he's willing to reach out, deliver them, and work with them as sick as they are. Hey, that's awesome. Doesn't God look good? Well, we don't have time to go to the... the I want to go back to the false gods of Chemosh and Molech, and, and there's a whole section in here on the false gods, Chemosh, Molech, uh, and what they were like. And, and In fact, I have to, I'll share this with you. We'll, we'll skip down past uh, Dagon, and we'll hit Asherah and Baal. Um, Asherah 
uh, was a, a goddess of fertility who was the consort of El, and El was the father of Baal. And El is called again and again Torah El, bull El, or bull god. He is uh, Batan, Batanu Benwate, creator of creators, Abu Bani Ili, father of the gods, Abu Adami, father of man. Uh, and then I'm going to skip down. He's, the epitaph Olam appears in the Hebrew form in Genesis, Elohim. El is Elohim, the god of Baal, the father of Baal. And Baal is a word that means Lord, and in Hebrew, it means master, protector, husband. And in the Bible, we have Baal Peor and Baal Bereth, uh, some of the cities of, of Israel named after the husband and protector of Israel, as they refer to Yahweh, innocently enough, uh, as the master and husband and protector. Um, Baal was the god of weather, the almighty, the lord of the earth, who brought thunder, rain, lightning, fertilized the earth, controlled the sun, the harvest. Baal had a brother named Mot, who was the god of death, and Baal and Mot fought each other, and Mot killed Baal, and Baal rose from the dead to bring life to the earth. <laughs> this is all in your notes? It's all in the notes. Yes. Now, what is the problem with worshiping the son of Elohim, who is the creator of everything, who controls the weather, who brings us life, who is the god of fertility, who fights against the other created, the, the other son of God, who is the, the source of death, who fights against death, who dies in that fight, who rises again to bring life to the earth. What's wrong with worshiping this god? What's his character? Bingo. Bingo. And I've got it in the notes. Prophets and Kings 124. Determined to keep people in deception, the priests of Baal continued to offer sacrifices to their gods and call upon them day and night to refresh the earth with costly offerings and the priest attempted to appease the anger of their god. This is the key. This is the deal. What's his character like? Is he self-sacrificial, loving, or is he angry, wrathful, and needs to be appeased? Is he giving, or is he selfish? This is the deal. I've got a lot more quotes in here, but if we want the gospel to go to the world, see, we don't have problems today. Oh, let me back and give one more point. Second Kings 17, 14 through 15. What's the problem with worshiping these gods? It says, but they would not listen. They were as stiff-necked as their fathers. They rejected his decrees, made for themselves idols. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. It's a quote from scripture. This is a law. By beholding, we become changed. We become like that which we admire and worship. God tells us to worship him, not because he needs our worship, because we need to admire and worship him so that we can be transformed back into his likeness. Satan is the father of lies. And as he gets us to believe lies and distorted concepts about God, he has power over our minds to warp and destroy us. And this is what's really happening. And if we want the gospel to go to the world, to do our mission as a church, and, and for Christ to come, then as a church, we've got to rise up and throw out these distorted God concepts about appeasement theology and penal substitutionary theories that make God into this punitive monster who has to be paid off by the blood of his son. This is Baal worship. And we are prophesied in Malachi that before the great day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah will go forth again and turn the hearts of the, of the fathers back to the sons and the sons back to the fathers. Love. Now the hearts back to each other love the message of God's character of love. It's what needs to go forward to the world. If you're troubled by the, the counterfeit looking so close to the, are you, if you're troubled by that, and some of you may be troubled, that these pagan things look so close to the real, how do I know? Don't be troubled. The best counterfeit money is not pink. If you're going to counterfeit something, you counterfeit it very closely. 
So these similarities should not trouble you. It, it should give you confidence in, in all the things we know to be true, but then you get down and you identify what are the differences, and it comes down to that character difference. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not like these pagan constructs have made you out to be. We thank you that you are just like Jesus revealed. We pray that you will open our minds, help us clarify the truth and get the distortion out of our thinking so that we can be accurate in our representations of you and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.